0: Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. One of my favorite TV shows, by the way, for those who have just joined us, either online or in person, we are continuing with our sermon series based on the Gospel of Mark. One of my favorite TV shows growing up is this unassuming, dotty, seemingly clumsy detective by the name of Columbo, starring Peter Falk. Maybe you remember him as the grandfather who tells the story of the princess bride to his grandson. If you love injustice and you're impatient at the same time, you love Colombo because he always, always gets the murderer after every episode. You don't have to wait for six episodes before the murderer is apprehended. After every episode, uh, the killer is caught and is uh, sent away to prison. But unlike many cop shows... The identity of the murderer and how the murder is carried out is revealed right at the start of each episode. And for the rest of the episode, you're treated to Colombo's unique and some would say annoying detective skills in apprehending the murderer. It's brilliant. How many of you have seen Colombo? If you haven't seen it, go watch it. It's great. I think about 12 seasons. Go on a binge. The book of Mark is similar to Columbo in that right at the start, Mark wastes no time revealing to us the identity of Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. In his first public message, Jesus proclaimed, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jews of Jesus heard this, they got excited because They thought Jesus was saying that in their time they would witness God stepping into history and bring an end to this age or bring an end to the Roman rule and usher in the age to come, the messianic age, which, which is also referred to as the kingdom of God or the time of God's rule. This new age would be a time of righteousness, a time of peace, sickness, Sin, suffering, pain would be a thing of the past. There would be complete and total harmony in creation. Here's one extraordinary picture of what this new world order would look like. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. And the calf and the lion the yearling together. And a little child would lead them. The cow would feed with the bear and the young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. There will neither harm nor destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water waters cover the sea. And when Jesus followed up that message by teaching and doing extraordinary things that they had never witnessed, which we will look at throughout the Gospel of Mark, people begin to wonder if Jesus was really the Messiah who would bring in the Messianic age in all of its splendor and in all of its glory. His disciples and other followers thought so until he was crucified. But then he rose again on the third day and appeared to many of them. And suddenly, his followers were going, perhaps we've written off Jesus too soon. Maybe he is the Messiah after all. And this is the context of the inevitable question that came to Jesus before his ascension to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? It wasn't until Jesus was taken up to heaven and the outpouring of God's promised Holy Spirit that the penny finally dropped. In that moment, the disciples realized that Jesus had not come to usher in the final end, but the beginning of the end, as it were. And thus they came to see that with Jesus' death and resurrection and with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the blessings and the benefits of the future of God's kingdom has already, had already come, but not fully. It is like the entree of a sumptuous three-course meal. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. We live between the beginning of the end and the completion of the end, which will occur upon Jesus' return. Meanwhile, we're called to live surrendered lives as God's children and citizens of his kingdom, freely loved, accepted, and forgiven in the power of the Holy Spirit with Jesus as our absolute Lord in every area of life, Every week, every day of the week, in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces, where we live, where we study, where we play. Now, sometimes these places are walk in the park, but other times they feel like the wilderness that Jesus experienced, with our faith tested or under attack by the evil one, our advocate. In this present age, You and I need to realize that Christians will not be exempted from experiencing sickness. We will not be exempted from uh, uh, experiencing injustice, suffering, and other problems in life. Notice Mark describing Jesus being among wild animals in the wilderness in verse 3. Why is this? because Mark was most likely writing to Christians who were persecuted in Rome, he's probably referring to those being thrown to wild animals in the Colosseum. He was telling them that Jesus, who had faced wild animals himself, will be with them when they face their share of wild animals. By way of encouraging, encouraging them to keep following the Lord with increasing hope, fervor, resilience, and confidence, Mark reminds them and us that it is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith that will get us across the finishing line. We need to remind ourselves time and time and time again who the Lord Jesus is if we want to finish well. That's the only way we can finish well, is to cast our eyes, cast our hope, cast our absolute vision on who the lord jesus is specifically in the four recorded acts at the start of his public ministry what mark wants us to remember and ground our faith in is jesus authority a key theme in the first half of mark's gospel everything that jesus does he does with authority so first we see the display of his, of his authority and the manner in which he calls his disciples to form a community of believers. In verse 16 to 20, we read the following. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Once they, at once they left their nets, And followed him when he had gone a little further he saw James son of Zebedee and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets without delay he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Firstly, it is very telling, is it not, that this is the first thing that Jesus does as he begins his public ministry. Jesus could have easily fulfilled and carried the whole ministry by himself, right? He could have done it all single-handedly. But he chose to include the four brothers that would grow to 12, to 70, and 120. These are people with names, with faces, and with flaws who would later turn their world upside down for Jesus. A scholar by the name of Edwards asserts, it is not an exaggeration to say that the seeds of the Christian church originated in the first act of Jesus' public ministry in which he called for fishermen into community with himself. Brothers and sisters, there is no room for lone rangers in Jesus' movement. So if you think that you can do Christianity all by yourself then you're in the wrong movement. We're called to be a part of his community of followers. Secondly, note that Jesus doesn't invite them to follow him. He actually summons them to follow him without any warning, right? Follow me. Would you like to follow me? He wasn't doing that. I'll, I'll give you 24 hours to decide. If you'd like more information, you can come and talk to me by that tree. We can discuss the benefits uh, of joining me and, uh, and, this, and, and, and the costs. <laughs> it's just none of that. Peter, Andrew, follow me. James and John, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And he's the unqualified subject of the call. And by the way, they drop everything and follow him. It is here that Jesus stands out from the other rabbis and Old Testament prophets. For instance, any following that rabbis had was down to the initiative of the aspiring student. They approached the rabbis, not the other way around. The other distinction is rabbinic students' chief allegiance is to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, rather than to a particular rabbi. In the Old Testament, summons from prophets, kings, and even Moses himself was never to follow them, but to follow God. The only exception was Elijah and his call of Elisha. Clearly, the calling of Simon and Andrew, James and John is rooted in Jesus' messianic authority alone. This matches the biblical pattern of God's calling of people. Garland and scholar writes the calling of the first disciple shows that one must not only repent and believe the gospel But one must also be ready to leave And follow Now unlike aspiring rabbinic students the brother didn't have any other qualifications or pass any examination and theology Before they can follow jesus and so we can conclude from this that becoming a follower of jesus is a gift not an achievement. It is a gift. Furthermore, as Edwards point out, what they need to learn and do can only be learned and done as they follow Jesus. For Mark, the act of following Jesus entails a risk of faith, and faith must be an act before it is a content of belief. Only as Jesus is followed, this is a critical line here, only as Jesus is followed can he be known. So in other words, you want to know God more, you've got to be prepared to step outside of your comfort zones. It is risky business following Jesus. But that's the only way you're going to know him and experience him is by following him no matter where that following may take you. And Jesus finally was calling them to service. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In the book of Acts, we see what the service looks like. It will be costly and sacrificial, but also fulfilling and satisfying. Can you think of anything more satisfying, more fulfilling than seeing the Lord Jesus Stand up to receive you as you're just about to die, like Stephen did in the book of Acts chapter 6. Or Paul, seeing throngs of people being saved and being brought to the kingdom of God as a result of his preaching and ministry. There's nothing more joyful than seeing people come home and be restored to our Heavenly Father. In the second account, we see the, the authority of Jesus in his teaching. For Jesus' first public appearance in ministry, Mark chooses chooses Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, which was Jesus' residence after leaving Nazareth. According to custom, he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath and begins to teach. Those listening were stunned. In verse 22, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not like the teachers of the law. Now, let's put this into perspective. The teachers of the law were no lightweight. They were the equivalent of professors in theology, if you like. Uh, They were well-regarded teachers, moralists and civil lawyers. And people would defer to them as they walked through the streets. The first seats And the synagogues were reserved for them. They were the VIPs of Jesus' day. And when they entered the room, people would rise to their feet in honor and respect of them. And this is what people respond, how they responded to Jesus' teaching. When they contrast Jesus' teaching and the teachers of the law, there's something different There's something qualitatively different about Jesus' teaching. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what it was about Jesus' teaching that left such a deep impression on the people. He simply makes the point that people who heard Jesus were left with a strong sense that Jesus isn't merely someone speaking about God. In Jesus, they see someone speaking for God speaking as though he were God, unlike the teachers of the law. Mark's statement is more an acclamation of Jesus rather than a denigration of the teachers of the law. Furthermore, Mark is not emphasizing the content of Jesus' teaching, but his his authority, his power, the source of which is none other than the Holy Spirit who came upon him earlier at his baptism. Jesus' authority goes to another level in the following incident, which undoubtedly in the audience's mind stands him even more apart from the teachers of the law. In the middle of his teaching, suddenly there's an outburst from a man possessed by an unclean spirit, a favorite expression of Mark for evil spirits. To us in the West, where science is everything, We may dismiss the world of demons as ridiculously outlandish. But their presence in the world is something that the New Testament takes for granted. Writers in the New Testament don't even bother explaining the origins of demons. They just tell it like air. It's as real as air. It's as real as the ground on which you stand on. Do I need to explain land? Is just assumed, and we ought to be really careful about being uh, skeptical about the world in which we know little about, and and by the way, most of the information you find about the unseen world comes from the Bible. If I may so boldly say the Bible is full of demons, (laughs) that's where you get it from. And so don't be too skeptical and don't be too quick to dismiss the reality of the unseen world. It's real. It's behind a lot of problems we see in the world, uh, both corporately, uh, levels of nations, and also in individual lives. They are demons at work, keeping people in chains and in darkness, But as followers of Jesus, we have nothing to be afraid of. The unclean spirit in the man recognizes the authority of Jesus straight away as God's chosen, sent to break the rule of Satan. Verse 24, what do you want to do with us? What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus delivers the troubled man by telling the unclean spirit to shut up And to come out of him. And you think that Jesus would appreciate some free publicity from his enemies, the evil spirits. But to do so is akin to an MP accepting donations for a criminal for a campaign, no matter how worthy the cause is, right? So everyone was amazed when this happened. Not only unclean spirits obeyed Jesus... But there is a definitive change in that man's life, in that man's life from whom the evil spirits was cast out from. The victim is freed and restored. The authority of Jesus is not so much a display of his grandeur, but a display of his heart to redeem people, to redeem the captives. News of Jesus' mighty deeds spread quickly over the whole Of Galilee. And finally, we see the display of Jesus' authority in healing the sick. Jesus immediately exits the synagogue and goes into Peter and Andrew's house. There he finds Peter's mother in law in bed, according to Luke, with a high fever, not just a fever, but with a high fever. In verse 31, so he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up the fever left her and she began to wait on them she she was she was so fully restored she was back up on her feet going all right who wants a cuppa who wants a cup of tea and who wants a cup of coffee i can do it that's how well she was there's no uh, spells or incantations typical of healers in those days Jesus heals her and he does so with such compassion and sensitivity and gentleness rather than with pomp and glory. Free from Sabbath related travel restrictions and activity. Many more people show up at the door of Peter's house seeking physical healing and deliverance from unclean spirits. In verse 32 to 34, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. All right, Mark, this is all well and good, is it not? But I wish I could witness more of Jesus' authority, more of the display of Jesus' authority in my life and in my circumstance. I could sure do with Jesus' authoritative interventions in my life right now. But I'm not seeing it. Do you feel like that sometimes? You read the Bible and you think and the preacher tells you, oh, the authority of Jesus like I am doing. You go, yeah, yeah, yeah. What has that got to do with my circumstance? I feel like my situation is pretty hopeless. Well and good to hear about it. Well and good for you to teach and unpack. It's interesting. It's great. But I would sure like to see Jesus' authority right now displayed in my situation, intervening my life and my circumstance right now. Unless you've been living under a rock, you would have read about Ever Given, one of the largest container ships in the world that was wedged across the Suez Canal, holding up goods uh, worth an estimated $9.5 billion per day, threatening an already fragile world economy. My initial reaction was, you know, in this day and age, <laughs> so that's a minor problem. Should, the ship would be freed up very quickly until I saw this picture. You see the picture? <laughs> that is a massive excavator, but placed alongside the every Given. You think? Ah! And I wonder if you ever feel like your problem is the size of every Given, and Jesus is the excavator. Ever you know, feels like that? You think? <laughs> you pray up a storm. You're not seeing nothing you pray pray for the sick people in your life and they remain sick you pray for the ever given troubles and situation in your life you pray and you pray and you seek others to pray you even fast you go on a fasting protest i don't know say god move god do something god intervene in in the life of my my parents and the life of my siblings and the life of my children do something you wake up the next morning hoping that every given is shaken released and free and it's still stuck there may feel like that nothing happens people in suffering remain in suffering the ever givens in your life are still there you're told jesus are won the victory over sin and death you're told this morning about jesus authority And yet suffering, and yet evil still exists. This paradox can cause our faith in Jesus to quickly wane as we're conflicted about the Jesus we read and then about the Jesus we experience. Right? There's a difference. This is wonderful. Bang, Jesus, come out, out. Be healed. healed. <laughs> why is that happening in my circumstance? <laughs> Jesus, exercise your authority over the ever-givens in my life. And why aren't you doing that? As a writer asks, how do we live out joy, peace, freedom, and hope when the hopelessness, suffering, grieving, injustice, and sorrow permeate our world at a microscopic level? Can I suggest that the answer may lie with remembering and anchoring our faith in the truth that the Jesus that we just explored, who displayed his authority in summoning Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who displayed his authority through his teaching, who displayed his authority by casting evil spirits, who displayed his authority by healing the sick, is the same yesterday today, and forever. As I said at the start, we live in the tension between the now and not yet. Folks, I can't explain to you why God doesn't prevent all of our suffering. I can't. But I know this. He suffers with us. He suffers with us. The same Jesus whose absolute authority we just read about walks where you're walking he lives where you're living he works where you're working despite evidence to the contrary something that the Christians in Rome undergoing persecution can attest to Jesus is firmly in charge and that was Mark's message to them I know you're finding it tough brothers and sisters You're facing persecution. You're not well liked by your community. You're treated with great suspicions. People spit on you. There is the possibility that you could be taken by the Roman authorities and be thrown into the Colosseum. So everything around you is saying that God is not in charge, that God has lost all control, that God is just a mouse, not the Lion of Judah. I want you to know that Jesus is still firmly in charge. He's not lost any of his authority despite evidence to the contrary. And that is why Jesus can make this assertion to his disciples. And it's a word to us in John 16, verse 33, part C. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have persecutions, you will be scorned. You will find life extra difficult because you are a follower of Jesus. You will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I have not lost any of my authority. I am still in charge. He's the same Jesus that the apostle John saw in his vision In in Revelation chapter 1, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest, with hair on his head white like wool, white as snow, and eyes like blazing fire. His feet like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, his face like the sun shining in all of its brilliance, he is that same Jesus in the 21st century that John saw. Bring your ever-given situation. Trust him for his deliverance in his time and in his way. He's able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work with us every single time but on the proviso that it's his prerogative to answer how he wants to and when he wants to, okay? He's able to do immeasurably more, but on the proviso that we understand that it is his complete prerogative to answer how he wants to when he wants to. So here's the application for this week. Read again Mark chapter 16, verses 16 to 34. And then after reading it, entrust your ever-givens. Entrust your ever-givens to the Lord Jesus. Declare his complete authority over the ever-givens in your life. Stand upon Jesus' promise in John 16, verse 33. Lord, this is the trouble that you promised that I will have. That shouldn't surprise me. That shouldn't shock me. That is a given. That is something I'm fully aware of. But Lord, what I am not fully aware of, what I have not fully grasped, or what has lost sight from my vision is that you have authority. It's the second part of your statement. Take heart. I have overcome the world. What does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know. You'll have to seek the Lord about that, about the ever givens in your life. What does it mean, Lord, when you say, I have overcome? Speak to me about the ever givens in my life. But one thing I need to be reminded of, Lord, is that you are bigger than the ever givens in my life, that your authority has not waned, that you haven't lost control or lost charge over the ever givens in my life. That is what we need.